the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Good afternoon and welcome to Woods and Water, South Carolina. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I started to introduce this as the sixth edition of the Thanksgiving coma show, food coma show. <laughs> wow. People can really eat, you know? I, Yeah, it always amazes me how much food I can eat in a given day. And then the next day and then the day after that. And, you know, some of us are going to do it again tomorrow on Sunday. But uh, I, I do hope you had a great Thanksgiving Spent it with family, friends, maybe got outside and and uh, got some hunting in or, or hiking or maybe had a camp a fire, you know, just a simple fire in the backyard at night. It just um, something outdoors just always seems to add to the season, you know. <laughs> I kind of if you've listened to this show for the past what six years almost, Thanksgiving has always been a show that I've done with a family member. You know, memories of growing up with my brother or my girl's memory between the two of us. Or, you know, even had my mom on. Haven't got my dad yet. Dad's 86. He uh, he tells me he's not coming on the air. But I may have to I may have to record him one day when he's not listening or not looking and and get him on the show. But this year I, I, I tried a couple things and had a couple ideas and nothing just nothing just really flushed out, so to speak. So going to be me today. You have to put up with me for a whole show, but we got some fun stuff. We're going to talk about Thanksgiving a little bit, getting outdoors. Uh, one of my favorite authors is Robert Rourke. There's a kind of a thing that takes me back to my childhood in here. Probably some of you out there can uh, can remember a time in your life when you did something like this, and if you didn't, well, maybe it kind of picks your interest to try it or try something like this, and if not, Christmas is coming up. If you like stories like this, then, man, Rourke writes a bunch of good ones. Gene Hill, maybe a good idea. And then I've got some other stuff here. We might delve a little bit in the public trust doctrine, um, conservation. It is Thanksgiving, and there's a lot to be thankful for. hope you took some time over the past couple of days to uh, to look back and, and find some of those same things that um, that you're thankful for this time of the year, which always leads to... We're, we spend one day thankful for everything that we have, and the very next day we go out and buy stuff that we don't need. <laughs> Black Friday. And then I think, what, Monday, Cyber Monday? So we're getting everything online on Monday, and then I think Tuesday is Giving Tuesday. So it, it comes full circle. But anyway, it got this little bit of of, uh, of Thanksgiving for you. Uh, Thanksgiving Proclamation. By Teddy Roosevelt. Prior to Franklin, Del- Franklin D. Roosevelt's presidency, Thanksgiving was celebrated on whichever date the president proclaimed it to be. George Washington issued the first presidential pro- proclamation for Thanksgiving in 1789, and presidents continued to do so thereafter up until FDR, who finally set the date 
Following this long-standing tradition, the father of you know, American conservation, Teddy Roosevelt, proclaimed Thursday, November the 29th, 1906, to be a day of thanksgiving and supplication. The text is as follows. By the President of the United States of America, a proclamation. The time of year has come when, in accordance with the wise custom of our forefathers, it becomes my duty to set aside a special day of thanksgiving and praise to the Almighty because of the blessings we have received and of prayer that these blessings may be continued. Yet another year of widespread well-being has passed. Never before in our history or in the history of any other nation has a people enjoyed more abounding material prosperity than is ours, a prosperity so great that it should arouse in us no spirit of reckless pride and least of all a spirit of heedless disregard of our responsibilities, but rather a sober sense of our many blessings and a resolute purpose under providence not to forfeit them by any action of our own. Material well-being, indispensable though it is, can never be anything but the foundation of true national greatness and happiness. If we build nothing upon this foundation, then our national life will be as meaningless and empty as a house where only the foundation has been laid. Upon our material well-being must be built a superstructure of individual and national life lived in accordance with the laws of the highest morality, or else our prosperity itself will in the long run turn out a curse instead of a blessing. We should be both reverently thankful for what we have received and earnestly bent upon turning it into means of grace and not of destruction. Accordingly, I hereby set apart Thursday, the 29th day of November next, as a day of thanksgiving and supplication on which the people shall meet in their homes or their churches, devoutly to acknowledge all that has been given them, and to pray that they may in addition receive the power to use these gifts aright. In witness thereof, I have here hereunto set my hand and caused the seal of the United States to be affixed. Done at the city of Washington this 22nd day of October in the year of our Lord, 1906, and of the independence of the United States, the 131st, Theodore Roosevelt. And it's interesting <clears throat> because there's a, an additional, actually the uh, the original one is, is attached to what I have here, and he uh, he leaves out a few things. <laughs> he uh, discusses our own folly, weakness, or wickedness and expounds upon the theme of disaster that would surely come if Americans are not careful with their material well-being. Um, it says the context of this proclamation reflects a turning point in our nation's history as the extreme wealth of the late 19th century continued to be amassed early in the 20th. Proponents of reform began to emerge, pushing the nation's nation toward the progressive era. So, um, anyway, like I said, hope you next year I think I'm gonna do the Thanksgiving show before Thanksgiving. I'm always the Saturday after because that's when the you know it's where you take the day off and station closed and all. But next year I may do it earlier, just to see, just to get Thanksgiving in before Thanksgiving. We'll see how that works out. <coughs> Excuse me, this uh, cough is taking a time for those of you who've had the flu or or anything close to it. You know what I'm talking about. In uh, got a few minutes here. We're gonna we're gonna continue on and and we'll probably carry this over in the next segment. But it is it is Thanksgiving. It is the the holiday season. You're gonna have some time to take off work here. You're gonna have time to spend with the family. A lot of you'll be getting outdoors and doing the things that you do outside: hiking, hunting, fishing, camping. Yeah, even in December, people go camping. And it's it's uh. You know, it's beginning to become a prescription from some doctors for people to spend time outdoors. And why? 
just a just a little thing to help you out. Ten reasons why kids need to spend time outdoors. If you adults don't think so, think of your kids. And I've quoted this book several times, and, and Richard Louve penned the term nature deficit disorder, a phrase to describe the fact that children today are spending less and less time outside. Studies show that the average American child spends only four to seven minutes a day in unstructured play outdoors and seven hours a day in front of a screen. All that time spent out time indoors has serious implications from obesity to increased risk of ADHD to, to even more serious health issues. So here we go. Number one, playing outside builds confidence. And you can think back of, into your childhood and, and see where this came into play. Whether your child is learning to navigate a trail by map, pitch a tent for the very first time, or identify the type of salamander slithering in the creek behind their house, kids build confidence and useful skills by playing outdoors. As kids take risks outside, scrambling up a pile of rocks, swinging from a rope swing, or a vine in a tree like we did, their belief in their own physical abilities grows. That skill will serve them well for life. Number two, spending time outdoors teaches independence. Telling your children to go outside and play does more than get them away from their devices. As your child learns to explore the outdoors on his own or with a friend, he learns independence. Children often have little say in what happens in their lives, but when they play freely, they make their own choices. It's the small, unstructured moments, like learning how to construct a fort out of sticks, that lead to independence and refine your child's decision-making skills. So we got a few more here, but we're running up again. Let's get one more in. Playing outside gets kids active. Kids spend a tremendous amount of time inside every day. Though it's not always easy to convince your child to play outside, especially in less than ideal weather, at least one expert has recently recommended kids have three hours of play outside each day. We'll come back and pick up there on the other side, but hang with me through the break and uh, grab another couple pieces of turkey or another piece of pumpkin pie or whatever it is, and we'll settle in for the next segment of Woods and Water South Carolina. Hang on. Welcome back to Woods and Water South Carolina. You need some sweet tea to drink with whatever you just got up and got out of the refrigerator. So, give you a second. Okay, second's over. All right, number three, playing outside gets kids active. Uh, it talks about recommended kids have three, three hours of play outside each day. It's kind of tough this year, man, this time of the year. With daylight savings time, I wish they would do away with it. But, uh, you know, you just have to make up. You have to get what you can in this time of the year. Weekends are a great time to do it. While, um, continuing on, while that might seem daunting to parents, Experts agree outdoor play allows children the freedom and space to run, jump, spin, and crawl, build muscles, and perfect their balance. With childhood obesity rates tripling since the 70s, there's no more imperative time to make sure your child gets and stays active. Number four, nature inspires the imagination. And this is where you being outside with them and as an adult helps. Because you can, I mean, even if you know the answers, even if you know exactly what's going on, you can act interested too and it the kids seem to feed off of that so cut your child loose in a park and watch as the world transform transforms into a magical playland a tree branch morphs into a wander cane a bright red leaf is suddenly a secret scroll imprinted with a map to a hidden treasure in nature your child's imagination blooms studies show that children who watch screens are only using two senses guess sight sound um which can seriously affect their perceptual abilities. 
When they play outside, guided by their imaginations, all of their senses are stimulated as they touch tree bark or grass, smell the plants and flowers, watch the clouds drift across the sky, and taste the rain or snow. You know, it was one thing when we were growing up, we'd have a TV. I spent a lot of time just laying in the pasture with the cows staring up at the sky, <laughs> looking at clouds. And it was great. I loved it. And, and sweet feet is not bad. I ate a bunch of that, too, as a kid. Okay, number five, kids who play outdoors have better friendships and psychosocial health. A Canadian study recently found that kids who play outside have stronger friendships and better mental health based on scores such as functioning and aggression. Researchers say that some of those psychosocial benefits come from kids interacting with real people like neighbors, adults, and children, and from learning their place in the community. Additionally, when kids play outside, inventing games, or working with siblings and peers to build forts or catch bugs, they learn to collaborate, a skill that will serve them well throughout their lifetime. Number six, many of our children's days are spent indoors in a climate-controlled environment where their needs can be met in a few short steps to the bathroom refrigerator. Bundling up for cold weather, feeling hunger without instant food access, and even falling down and scraping a knee all help build resiliency in kids. When kids experience minor pain or discomfort in the outdoors, they learn that they can overcome an uncomfortable situation and live without instant gratification. I always said when my kids were growing up, let them do something. If it hurts bad enough, they won't do it again. But that little bit of pain, they dealt with it. They figured out how to either avoid it or put up with it. You know, valuable life lesson. Kids who play outside are stronger. There's an alarming trend in physical health these days. Kids spend so much time sitting at their desk, hunched over their computers and schoolwork, that there has been an increase in children referred to occupational therapy because of clumsiness, clumsiness, spinal health, and overall lack of coordination. When kids are outdoor playing, whether they're swinging from the monkey bars, riding bikes, or wading through a stream, they're building muscle, stamina, and improving their motor skills. There's no denying that outside play makes children physically stronger. It's good for their mental health, and this goes for adults, too. Over the past century, researchers have tracked a drastic increase of anxiety and depression among kids. Their hypothesis is that the decline in free play among children has caused a decline in their sense of feeling in control and their ability to set intrinsic goals, like the sense of accomplishment one feels when reaching the top of a mountain after a hard hike. Research has also shown that going on a hike in the woods can improve blood pressure, increase mental health, and even decrease your risk of cancer. This is true of young and old alike. Number nine, it's good for their physical health. When you look outside and see your child shooting hoops, what you can't see is their brain working furiously to fine-tune gross motor skills, learn depth perception, and improve balance. Not only is playing outdoors great for a child's motor skills and learning, research has shown that spending an extra hour outside each week can combat nearsightedness in children and enhance sleep. And the last one, number 10, kids who play outdoors are more, more likely to protect nature. And this is huge. In the United States, we're extremely lucky to have so much public land to hike, climb, camp, and bike on. But one major implication of our children spending so much time indoors is that children who are disconnected from the outdoors may not feel the need to protect and defend our public lands as they age into adulthood. One recent study found that 87% of adults surveyed who played outside as kids maintain their love of the outdoors into adulthood. Furthermore, 84% of those adults said taking care of the natural world is a priority to them. If we wanted to protect the land for future generations, we need to get our current generations outside. And that is so true. In fact, it it uh, it goes into another subject that I've um, 
that I've wanted to cover for a while, and it just there's only so much time. And let's see, I gotta find it here. Give me just a second. Nope, that's commercialization. The role of the trustee. Here we go. Okay, this is this is in conjunction with the public public trust doctrine, which is one of the the pillars of the North American model of conservation. And we'll get into, uh, like I said, I've uh, covered this a long time ago with Shane Mahoney. Or we started to, and we did a whole show and never got to it. Uh, threats to the public trust doctrine. If the public's ownership of wildlife or the value placed on it is compromised, the model could be jeopardized. Lack of awareness and understanding of the benefits and responsibilities of the doctrine leading to social and legal indifference by the trustee or the beneficiary, which is the public, could therefore create grave consequences for conservation. Um, Let's see. There's more. This is a 30-something page article, so it's hard to find it. And I marked off some stuff here. Uh... Oh, man, this gets – anyway, it goes into here and talks about the, you know, if if we don't involve future generations, then the effectiveness of the public trust doctrine goes away because no one understands it. No one's vested in it. So what am I talking about here? What have I got? i got a few minutes left here, I guess before the break. Yeah, about five minutes. The public trust doctrine, and this comes uh, – it's amazing what – what people don't know, and, and I'm, I don't know all of it, but I know a lot of things when it comes to the outdoors, especially when it comes to hunting, wildlife conservation, that sort of thing. And I, I had to go read up on this stuff, too, because I, I had an idea of the public trust doctrine, spent a few hours over the past week looking at looking into it historically, how it applies today, how it's applied over the last 200 years. And a lot of people don't understand it. And the, and the surest thing to that is when people say that the government owns wildlife. You know, that's why we have game laws, because it's owned by the state of South Carolina. It's owned by the federal government. And it's all wrong. Unlike what we had in Europe, where you had the landowners themselves own the game, that's different with fisheries. We're not talking about fish here, because the fish in my pond are mine. I don't have to have a license to go fish fish in my pond but on my land i have to have a state hunting license because the game on my land is not mine it's mine until it crosses the property line and then it becomes my neighbors not really but that's the way it happens the public trust doctrine goes all the way back to roman law that's where you can find the definition of it um Roman civil law is an essential element of the North American wildlife law. The doctrine establishes a trustee relationship of government to hold and manage wildlife, fish, and waterways for the benefit of the resources and the public. Fundamental to the concept is the notion that natural resources are deemed universally important in the lives of people and that the public should have an opportunity to access, assess, access these resources for purposes that traditionally include fishing, hunting, trapping, and travel routes, e.g. the use of rivers for navigation and commerce. 
It's also recognized an essential foundation of what has been termed the North American model of conservation. This model is viewed as an important construct of law, policy, program, framework, and scientific investigations led to the protection, conservation, and restoration of wildlife populations in the U.S. and Canada. The underpinnings of the PTD, the Public Trust Doctrine, the future relevance and successful application of the model may be at risk due to recent changes in society, government policies, and case law. And changes in society, that is people not getting outside and accessing it making use of it, hunting, fishing, hiking, camping, whatever, and not having an understanding of their role as the beneficiary of the government trust. Uh, let's see. The trust defined in why it matters, and I'm not going to go too deep in this, but simply defined the trust as a collection of assets committed or entrusted to one of the managed or cared for in the interest of another. The party to whom the trust assets are committed is commonly referred to as the trustee, whereas the party for whom the assets are being managed refers to the beneficiary of the trust. Accordingly, the PTD holds the publicly owned wildlife resources are entrusted to the government as trustee of these resources to be managed on behalf of the public, the beneficiaries. Consequently, governmental institutions do not own trust resources. Rather, they are owned by the public and they are entrusted in the care of government to be safeguarded for the public's long-term benefit. And this is where you have, um, you know, you have the uh, the Lacey Act of 190, I uh, forget what the Lacey, what year the Lacey Act was, that uh, that did away with the commercial, the commercial harvest and sale of of um, Wild game. And it may be the Lacey. Lacey Act was 1900-something, I believe. Anyway, we'll go into this more detail later on another show. But um, let's see. Yeah, it doesn't give me a date on the Lacey Act. But you see, that's why we have, that's why we have a Department of Natural Resources. And every state's got one. And they are entrusted with the management of a natural resource for our benefit. They don't own it. And a lot of, I've gotten this, why do we have antler restrictions? Because it's, it's got nothing to do with management. Well, it's because we have a voice in it. That's the beauty of, of being the beneficiary. They're entrusted, but we can have a voice. We can say, hey, we, we would like you to do this. And if there's enough of those voices that say we like, kind of like the tag system in South Carolina for deer, that was, those were hunters that got that started. So it's a pretty cool thing. Just the, That's just the groundwork. There's so much more to it. Like I said, just the PTD is 30-something pages long, and that's just one pillar. All right, hang on through the break. We're going to get into some fun stuff on the other side with more Woods and Water South Carolina. Welcome back to Woods and Water, South Carolina. Pecan pie, that's what you need. Another piece of pecan pie. Mm. Love Thanksgiving. But anyway, going back to what we talked about last, what I talked about last segment. Yeah, yeah public trust doctrine. It, it, we like to think of it in the in the sense of of hunting, fishing, you know, that type of things. But it's it is public lands too. You know, it's public lands, the uh, Sumner National Forest. Um, South Carolina Heritage Preserve, 
uh, lands around the state. Uh, I mean, all of that. It's held for our benefit. It's 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 entrusted to the government to manage for us future generations. And we have a voice. We have a voice. That's that's the really just the coolest thing about it is that we do have a voice in it. Sometimes it's not always heard because we're not loud enough. Sometimes we're totally ignored. But um, we do have the opportunity. Okay. Like I said, I went through all sorts of things for this show and just, just could not get comfortable with any of it. So <clears throat> this is this is going to be uh, – I'm going to try to be a storyteller here. Uh, Robert Rourke is one of my favorite authors. He, two, two books that he's responsible for that have just – I have spent endless hours reading and rereading and, and recommending, and I've, I've bought this book and given it to a bunch of people. Uh, it's The Old Man and the Boy, and it simply chronicles a kid growing up on the Outer Banks. Well, not the Outer Banks. Um, you know, around Curie Beach and all that in North Carolina. His name was Robert Rourke. He went on to be an um, investment banker in uh, New Jersey and then a um, – Safari went to Africa and wrote some cool stories about Africa. And th- this is the first book. This is The Old Man and the Boy, and then there's a, a companion book to it, The Old Man Boy Grows Older. This one starts and runs through his childhood with his granddaddy, who is the old man. And the second one picks up in his later life uh, after college. And with a lot of look backs at his life as a young man or situations in as an older man, looking back at the examples of his young childhood and all. And there's just there's just a lot of a lot of cool stuff. But if you if you're a hunter and and if you're not a hunter, keep listening. This is this is just fun. It's and I don't know if you if, it just it just applies to hunters, it really does. And if you can imagine, in the oh, I guess it was this would have been in the 30s, uh, <laughs> young kid. It, it's the title of the chapter is everybody everybody took sick but me. <laughs> and I can look back at this and and think of a time or two when this was me. Uh, didn't ha- really have school canceled like it does in his story, but in that we had a long Christmas vacation. I got, I kept, we got out of school like the first week of December and had pretty much the whole month of December. And that's just as about as much time as this chapter covers in, uh, in Robert Rourke's book, but hang in there with me. It's, it's a good one. It, it'd take you back to your childhood and just being carefree and having nothing else to do because everybody else around you was sick and nobody, you know, you weren't sick, so hang on with me. It is a good one. I suppose everyone has a little particular chunk of time he wishes he could get back and live all over again. The one fine time I remember best and most lovingly was when whooping cough hit the schools, all the schools. It was what they called an epidemic. The epidemic struck about two weeks before Christmas holidays started. First, there was whooping cough. Then there was measles, and everybody came down with them except a few of us lucky ones. The teachers had them too, including the principal. There wasn't a thing to do but shut up shop and let the diseases run their course. By the time the race was run, it would be so close to Christmas that there wasn't any use in starting classes all over again just for a few days. 
so they knocked off school for nearly a month. I tried real hard to regret this unforeseen gap in my keen pursuit of such things as Latin and geometry, but it so happened I enjoyed whooping golf and two kinds of measles, and I was salted. Maybe the other people were sick, but not me. I felt just fine. The chances are I was grinning all over my face when I got home the day they announced the closing of the schools. The old man looked sharply up at me and asked, What happened to start you grinning like a chessy cat? Teacher break her leg? No, sir, I said. Better. They just closed down the schools until after New Year's. We got an epidemic or something. School suspended hot diggity. Look at you, the old man chided, happy as a dead pig in the sunshine. Here you are, going to grow up ignorant, and all you can do is grin. I'm ashamed of you. It's not my fault I already had whooping cough and the measles, I protested. I didn't close the school, but as long as it's closed, I don't figure to cry myself to death. I think I'll just go and shoot some squirrels. You want to come? Not me, the old man said. This lumbago's got me. You're going to have to handle this misbegot holiday all by yourself. Just try to check in with me once in a while so as I won't feel too left out of things. The old man slid down in a chair and shoved his specs a little higher up on his nose and took to reading some book that must have weighed ten pounds. I changed my school clothes and went off to look for some squirrels. I didn't take the bird dogs along. I took Mickey, the spaniel. People today talk a lot about these German wire that'll hunt anything from rats to elephants but I'll stack that Mickey up against any of them as a plain meat dog. She was a spade golden cocker, darn near as old as me and a whole lot fatter. She was a pure tea hunting fool. <clears throat> Mickey was slow, but she was certain. She would find a covey quail as good as any professional quail dog. Although she wouldn't hold a point, she'd slow down enough to give you time to get up with her before she let out a yip and jumped. She would run a possum and night or tree a coon. She was poisoned on rabbits because since she couldn't outrun them, she'd outthink them and running past you. She loved to hunt squirrels, and she'd retrieve anything from a buck deer to a ground mole. She especially loved to go duck hunting, because the colder the water, the better she felt. One time I saw a big old bull mallard just about drown her. I don't want to tell you any real big lies about Mick. She didn't run rabbits as good as a pedigree beagle. She wasn't as dead on wounded ducks as a Chesapeake or a golden retriever. She didn't cover as much ground on quail as even a slow pointer, and she wasn't half the squirrel treeer that little Jackie the feist dog was. But for the most purposes, she was the most all-purpose dog you ever saw. As long as the old man was laid up, I couldn't get too far away from base because I wasn't old enough then to drive the Liz. And there weren't many quail around where we were living, so it was a waste of time to hunt much with the bird dogs. But there were a whole lot of little bits of game. A few quail, a few ducks, rabbits, squirrels, snipe. So for one solid month, it was me and Mickey. The cold had come, and there was a thin crust of ice on the ponds in the morning. Not heavy enough to bear your weight, mind you but enough to force the ducks into pools of free water. The leaves were off the trees so that you could see the squirrels, and a lot of the underbrush had died so the rabbits were fairly easy. You could always find one in the brush pile. There were a few doves still in the fields. Shotgun shells cost a nickel apiece. I reckon that this was the time when I picked up a very bad habit that has caused me a slew of complaints ever since. I wasn't then and never will be what is called a dedicated hunter, just burning to go and doing one particular thing was more like a highly trained quail dog that has slipped his leash and is having a glorious time chasing rabbits. I like to go out and just mess around and with some number eights in the shotgun and a few number fours in my hip pocket, two buckshot shells in my shirt pocket just in case a deer should run up and start out to trample me. And if you're a bird hunter, you know what that's exactly like when your quail dog, you know, decides he's going to run a rabbit. He feels bad about it after it's done, but he enjoys it while it's happening. 
Uh, one of the days I spent might have been typical of most of the days, and I'll try to tell you how it was. I was out of the bed in a cold black night with just a little glow in the old square stove in the living room. I dressed as close to it as I could get, and then went back in the kitchen and ate a cold sweet potato, a pickle, a glass of milk, and some leftover pound cake. I stuck a couple of apples in a bag of raisins in my hunting coat and didn't forget to grab a handful of matches on the way out. In addition to the gun and the shells, I carried a small belt axe and a blunt knife and a light army canteen. That was all I needed to be Dan Boone. Mrs. Mickey and I started out to conquer the country. We'd go first, stumbling and half-frozen the black morning, to a duck pond about a half a mile away and creep very quietly in the dark down to the water's edge and hide some brush I'd stacked up to make a blind. When the first gray light came, there would be ducks on the pond, some butterballs and bluebills, and a gray duck or a black mallard or so. I knew what I was going to do as soon as there was enough faint light to see by. And this is where it gets funny. I was going to pop off the first barrel and a clump of them on the water and then bang it a flyer as they went away. Yeah, not much on shooting ducks on the water. But my brother's got a pretty good story about shooting one on the water himself. So uh, back to the story. Mostly I was good for about four more shots because they'd circle the woods and come back again in a small bunches. On a good morning, I was a cinch to bag about four, five, six ducks, especially if I got a couple on the water. This one morning, I got only one on the water, and a wounded one fluttered up, and I gave him the other barrel, so just so I wouldn't have to go and hunt him in the woods. The ducks made the first return run, and I knocked down another and missed one going away. Then a fresh segment came in, and I was lucky. I got one coming and one going. The first one I hit in the head. He went up about 100 yards in the air like a skyrocket and came plummeting down as dead as a mackerel. Well, that was a fine start, I said to Mick as she plunged in the icy water. One black mallard, two butterballs, a bluebill, and a gray duck. We will now hang these ducks in a tree and go investigate the squirrel situation. Mickey fetched the last duck and looked at me as she shook herself. That's fine, she said. Man, that's water's cold. You get where there's going. This is just some good stuff. This is um, every kid's, every small kid, you know, that 15, 16-year-old. Uh, age when you just got out there and enjoyed being outside and enjoyed hunting because everything was in season that's what it's like after october after november so hang on let's take a break be back and i'll finish this up and we'll get on to a few more things Keep that up growing just a little bit. I did not plan this bumper music, but perfect stuff. If you don't recognize it, that's uh, that's John Bon Jovi, and uh, in one of them he does both of them, and he's got Jennifer Nettles does the other. And you can't go home. What a perfect one. Going back at Thanksgiving, going back home. For those of you that went back home for Thanksgiving, you know what it's like. You know, no place like home. Too much time on the telephone. Who says you can't go home? Love to go home. Love to go home. All right, let's. Uh, <laughs> perfect, perfect bumper music for today. Let's get back to this. I don't have very much. If you don't like listening to me talk, it'll be over shortly. <laughs> Instead, until then, I hope you hang in there with me. 
Uh, we were just a few rods from a big stand of hardwood trees, hickory mostly, with a few wild pecans that had sprung up a long time ago when somebody was farming there. You could almost always pull a few squirrels out of it because there were acorns and pine mast as well. We walked very slow and quiet, and you could hear the squirrels chittering and make their click-clack noise on the nuts, and once in a while, that long metallic churring sound. Mickey and I hunted very scientific. If the squirrels were on the ground, she'd chase them up a tree and raise the roof barking. The squirrels would watch her, and I might edge around the other side of the tree and shoot. One morning, I saw a big black and gray fox squirrel go into a nest, and I shot in the nest, and four fox squirrels fell out. That's something we were never allowed to do, was shoot into a nest of squirrels. You always wanted to see the squirrel. This morning, we didn't have that kind of rich luck. There weren't any squirrels on the ground, so I told Mickey to hush, and we sat quiet under a tree and called the squirrels, slipping the safety off the gun back and forth to sound like teeth on nuts and making the squirrel noise with my tongue. A couple of fool squirrels came slipping through the trees to investigate the noise, and I collected the pair. We picked up one more by accident as we walked through the timber stand, heading for a big deserted pea field that usually had some quail in it. Mickey lumbered off to where she figured the birds ought to be, and sure enough, they were there. She shook her stubby tail and wiggled her rear end like she'd slipped a ratchet somewhere, and the birds got up wild ahead of her. I shot twice and down one. I reloaded, and two laybirds got up, and I killed one and missed the other. The birds went into a wild great swamp that was so thick they weren't worth following. So we quartered the field, and I shot one dove that got up ahead of me. <laughs> we were doubling back around to pick up the ducks and go home for lunch when Mickey cocked her ears and jumped a big buck rabbit, and I added him to the bag. When she fetched him, he looked better, bigger than she was. I pulled out my dollar watch, and it was only 10 o'clock, so I decided to stop and light a fire and clean the game. There wouldn't be any lunch for another two hours anyhow. I took the belt axe and hacked off some pine knots and a couple of chunks of dead log and built me a blaze. I shut the squirrels and the rabbit and opened it up and started on the ducks. I had already eaten the apples and the raisins, and I was still hungry. So I took one of the quail and plucked him and stuck him on a green stick over the coals. He tasted a little burnt, feathery, and a raw touch, but he filled enough corners so that I could make it to lunch without starving. Mickey ate the innards. When I got home, I washed the ducks and the one quail and the dove and the three squirrels and the rabbit, cut them up and put them in the icebox. Then I washed my hands and went to lunch, which was black-eyed peas cooked with sow belly and hard country ham and bright golden cornbread and milk and apple pie with cinnamon dusted on it. Then I took a little nap after asking Big Fat Lil the cook to wake me up about 2 o'clock. About the same time, I'd generally be thinking of getting out of school. I reckon I smiled when I slept because all I had to do that afternoon was what I'd done that morning, only in reverse order, rabbits first, then quail, doves, squirrels, ducks. I performed this routine every day except Sunday for three weeks. Christmas Eve came, and the old man, better now of his lumbago, asked me what I thought I'd like to find under the tree the next morning. I didn't stop to think before I spoke. Nothing that I can't think of, I said. I've had my Christmas, except maybe I need some shotgun shells. I'm about shot out. The old man grinned. He'd been watching me every day, stumbling home deadbeat with a backload of game. I sure am glad that epidemic of yours is about played out or there'll be nothing else left in the neck of the woods to shoot. Remember what happened to the buffaloes? Christmas morning dawned bright and clear, but I wasn't there in the house to see it. I was down by the duck pond with Mickey shivering beside me, and I had clean forgot to look under the Christmas tree. Everybody took sick with me. Good story, and if you grew up in the country like I did, you can probably relate to some of that. Um, and it, you know, it was, it's funny. We didn't have Gore-Tex. We didn't have, you know, 
if we were lucky, we had some old waffle board um, long johns that really didn't keep you warm at all. Your feet got wet when it rained because you had on Army combat boots. Uh, you know, your jacket was your everyday jacket. You didn't have a hunting jacket. But, man, you lived it, you know. If you didn't grow up that way, you know, I, I feel sorry for you for some extent. I feel bad that I was that lucky. Um, but, you know, you can... You might not grow up that way, but you can expose, even now as an adult, you, kids, neighbors, whatever, to that lifestyle. There's plenty of public land out there to do it in. And all it is a short driveway from home. There's a sticker out from the Backcountry Hikers and Anglers. It said, uh, where the road ends, the adventure begins. And then that's the truth. All right, well... Hope if you're looking for something for a Christmas gift for somebody, Rort wrote some great books. Hill, um, Havila Babcock, all these were great outdoor writers. Um, if you're if you want to get a kid interested in the outdoors, give him an outside book, and then make him go outside and read it. Don't let him sit inside where the computer's there and all that. <clears throat> We've lost the ability to read books, and it's something we need to get back to. And I'm guilty of it. I've got, I don't know, five or six books still in plastic at home that I can't find time to get to and read. But I will one of these days. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about conservation. This was from National Review last week. Killing animals to save them. Hunting is conservation. Environmentalists, mainly of the weekend hiker variety, assume that the only way to save declining species is to protect them. Ban hunting. Put them, on, put them on endangered species list and otherwise restrict contact between the animal world and the human. Sportsmen have long believed that the best way to save declining species is to kill them. Allowing wild animals to be harvested for food and sport imparts clear value to the species and incentivizes sportsmen to do the hard work of protecting them and their habitat. The connection between hunting and conservation in the United States goes back to at least the early 20th century. The American Fisheries Society... Uh, organizations such as the Isaac Walton League. Uh, anglers partner with legislation to impose federal restrictions on transporting bass across state lines. Uh, the conservation model was a time-tested track record, but a new study published in Science offers a, a significant evidence that game species stand a much better chance of survival than their non-game counterparts. The top-line results of the study don't look promising. According to researchers at Cornell University, since the 1970s, the North American bird population has declined by 3 billion birds, or 30%. Media reports have focused on the staggering losses, as the study's first author, Ken Rosenberg, described them in science. And we talked about that and also talked about that cats kill 1.5 billion birds per year, which they don't mention here. There is a silver lining, however. Even as species such as sparrows, blackbirds, larks, and finches have sharply declined, the population of game species, including turkeys, grouse, ducks, and geese, have grown over the same time period. Conservation organizations such as Ducks Unlimited know that waterfowl populations are healthy. That's not news. But the fact that these populations have remained stable while other species have taken catastrophic losses testifies to the work of hunters and hunting-related conservation organizations in the United States. 
Rosenberg agrees. Waterfowl are without question the biggest success story, and we highlight that in the paper. And I do in all my talks, he tells me. It was the hunters who noticed the decline in waterfowl population in the mid-20th century and did something about it. Policies were put in place and billions of dollars raised by Ducks Unlimited. A targeted effort to manage and protect wetlands, restore wetlands, and restore waterfowl populations to have healthy populations for hunting. Um, the numbers testify to the effectiveness of such nearly literal grassroots lobbying. According to Rosenberg's study, while sparrows, blackbirds, and finches have declined between 30 and 50 percent, the turkey and grouse population is up over 20 percent, and ducks and geese have ridden, risen over 50 percent. Next paragraph starts out, never that simple. As with anything in the natural world, the full truth is complicated. All the biologists and other scientists I spoke with riffed on this theme, and it's important to note that myriad actors contribute to a species' success. It's never one factor that's driving a decline or a rebound, Rasher says. He points out, for example, that geese adapt readily to urban and agriculture environments, as anybody can testify who's been chased off his neighborhood pond or golf course by a patrol of Canadian geese. Much of the increase in the geese, goose population has been driven by a few, few specific subspecies that thrive in corn and rice fields. Mark Hatfield, Director of Conservation Service for the NWTF, also noted that game species tend to be adapted by definition. Humans hunt the kind of animals that exist reliably in large number. Game species are typically fairly adaptive. They have a wide geographic range, and they thrive with disturbance and management of habitat. One could argue that the reason they are game species is that they are very adaptable. So we find these species, make them into game, and then figure out how to manage them. Still, it's clear that the efforts of hunters have contributed directly to the health of many game species and waterfowl, the foremost among them. Scientists often point to the northern Bob White as an exception to hunters' conservation success, but in this case, it's an exception that proves the rule. Commonly hunted in the eastern United States, the northern Bob White population experienced a massive 85% decline between 1966 and 2014, according to the North American Breeding Bird Survey. The efforts of hunters haven't been enough to slow the decline, and in many places there are no longer enough northern bobwhites to hunt. Despite the failure, the northern bobwhite decline counters the idea that game species are inherently adaptable. Without sufficient intervention from constituencies that love and respect the species, game animals can fall prey to the habitat loss that has decimated most of the bird species that Rosenberg and his colleagues studied. So, Hunting is conservation. It's a theme that we talk about often here, and it's backed up in many studies that aren't hunting-related, including this one. And it goes on for a couple more pages, but it just reiterates some of the other stuff that's already been said. Hunters are the base of the food chain, the most important part of what we do. They fuel the, they're the fuel that runs the engine. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Get outside. Got some time between now and Christmas. Time to make plans to get out there. Take the back roads when you can. Don't forget the camera. Back next week with more Woods and Water, South Carolina.